that is a launching off point to what we're doing. The main thing that we want to do in this class is to just recognize that from the beginning to the end of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, that it's all just telling one story and how the little stories fit into the big story. But the main one is that right after Adam and Eve sinned, that a seed was promised and that we want to trace that seed throughout all of scripture. And we also recognize that there's going to be a war going on. A war is actually promised, prophesied at the very beginning that the seed of the woman would be battling the seed of the serpent. And we're ultimately looking for just one seed. And God had made a promise that he would have a holy people and a holy place. And so the rest of scripture is kind of unfolding this grand story. And we're all the way up to First and Second Kings, which um, if you may have read or listened to this week, but we noticed that in Judges, in the book of Judges, that there was a downward spiral of disbelief, a cycle of disbelief, disobedience, rebellion, and rescue over and over. And then the book of Judges had ended. It said, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we recognize that throughout scripture, we're finding two groups of people, those who do what is right in their own eyes and those who call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, those who are the seed of the serpent and those who are the seed of the woman. And we see this played out in in all of scriptures. It's actually an echo, right, of Genesis when, when Judges says, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes is an echo of Genesis that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And yet there was this remnant of people who called upon the name of the Lord, which was part of the seed. And then we noticed that through that downward spiral of judges that the promise of the Mosaic covenant ultimately came down to one person. The people as a group failed. The people as a group continually rebelled. But there was a look for, they were looking for one, just one king. And as the king goes, so would the people go. Would there be one person who would be faithful and who would be righteous? And last week, we took uh, quite a bit of time and we looked at the Davidic covenant in particular. And we noted that that's a different than the covenant in creation. It's different than Abraham. It's different than Moses. There's some similarities. The main thing that we wanted to notice about the Davidic covenant in particular is that it's more like the Abrahamic covenant. It's unilateral, it's unconditional, it's gracious, and it's eternal. If you remember, David said that he wanted to build a house for the Lord. And the Lord said, I didn't ask you to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you, and I will make you great, and I will make you king. And he even told him not that he's going to sit on the throne forever, but an heir of yours is going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. And so God is making unilateral promises to David of a people of a place, right? Going back to how the whole thing started. There's going to be a people in a place that are going to rule and reign with the Lord forever. They're going to live in peace. They're going to live in righteousness. They're going to live in holiness. But as the story unfolded, we kept on seeing with that promise, they're looking for a seed. And is it this son? Is it, it wasn't Seth. It wasn't Cain. It wasn't Abel. It wasn't Noah. It wasn't Shem. It wasn't Ham. It wasn't Japheth. Like, who is this one? Where's this promised one? And as we go along, we kind of find the funnel getting smaller and smaller and smaller, sometimes because the promises get more specific. It was gonna, he was going to ultimately be from the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
So there was going to be, there are 12 tribes, and now the seed can only come from one tribe. And so to trace it, there's fewer and fewer people that this could possibly be. And all of Scripture is trying to point us to the one so that we can recognize who the one is, who the Savior is. What we're going to look at today goes really nicely with what Reverend Godfrey um, was uh, preaching about this morning. But that Davidic covenant, we're looking for one king who would be faithful, who would be righteous, who would rule in peace, who would obey. Where the people failed and others had failed, that this one would be faithful and this one would be true. And then last week we traced Hannah, Samuel, Saul, and David. And we noted those characters and that none of them were ultimately the one, but the Lord used them all. And then so next in line in what a lot of first kings, which is where we're at, takes up is Solomon, right? And we could say a lot of wonderful things about Solomon. He built the temple. He was advanced in wisdom. He amassed wealth and land. He had a good reputation. But on page 123 of Keel's book, he gives a really great summary of the kings. And so if you read Kings or if you read this chapter of this book this week, it's depressing. (laughs) I was depressed going through it again. And there's just this cycle of these kings that just do these awful boneheaded things. Many of them are oppressive or bloodthirsty. They're negligent. They're idolatrous. They're adulterous. They're treacherous, right? There's some wonderful stories weaved in there. We get the story of Elijah and the Mount Carmel. We get the story of Joash. And, you know, all of David's line comes down to there's only one living heir left. And he's actually hiding under his great-great-grandfather's um, arm, armor when they come to find him. I mean, this is the, the war that's going on. Satan's trying to kill this line. And there's one heir of David left living and God preserves his life, of course. <laughs> and so there's some remarkable stories in there, but when you read it, it's just depressing to, to, to look at. So we're not going to go through all of the kings. The main thing that I wanted to get at is to note that in the Davidic covenant, we're looking for God to fulfill his promise, but we're also looking for a king to fulfill the law, and how that points forward to Jesus Christ. There is an heir, a son of David, from that exact line that comes. But if you have your books, um, well, actually, it's on your handout. On page 123, uh, Zach Keel summarizes all of this very well. He says, but if you pay attention to the details, you start to notice that not everything that glimmers is gold. Talking about the, uh, the peak of uh, Solomon's empire. The hygiene of Jerusalem is not up to code. On this building over here, the plaque says the Temple of Shemesh, which is the god of Moab. The monument on that corner is dedicated to Ashtaroth, which is one of the Canaanite goddesses. The bell on the Mount of Olive rings for Milcom, who's an Ammonite deity. And there is a shrine in Molech, uh, the Ammonite god, who demands child sacrifices. There are idols in this Jerusalem, and the patroness of the shrines are the wives of Solomon. 700 wives and 300 concubines is a ludicrous rejection of God's command. And Solomon pays homage to the deities of his brides. He bends the knee, I don't know, the the new, sorry. (laughs) He bends the, the knee and kisses the bull. 
The temple builder king, whose devotion eloquently prayed after the glory cloud filled the temple, added gods and goddesses to his pantheon. The cedar forest of the holy Jerusalem is infested with idols. Solomon may have judged cases with wisdom. His publications on wildlife and proverbs may be filled with astute scholarship, but when it comes to the ground level of righteousness, to worship Yahweh alone, he fails. The son did not surpass his father, and yet for the father's sake, Yahweh did not rip the kingdom from Solomon's hands. That's a ringing indictment, but it's a really wonderful summary of First and Second Kings, not only in Solomon's life, but Saul's and David's in some sense, and Rehoboam and Hezekiah and Joash and Jeroboam, I mean, well, all of them. So we're still looking for, where is this one? It's not them. It's not Jeroboam, it's not Joash, it's not even Hezekiah with all of his wonderful reforms. It's not them. If you look in your Bibles in 1 Kings 11, starting in verse 9, this is the main principle I want to get across about what we were looking at the last week and this week. First Kings 11 starting in verse 9 through verse 13. It says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. What kind of king was the Lord looking for? One after his own heart. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away the kingdom, but I will give... Give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So you see here, there's a principle of the Mosaic economy that if the king obeys, he gets to continue to rule and it goes well for the people. But if he doesn't, then he's taken away as king. But where we see the idea of the Abrahamic covenant is the kingdom doesn't ultimately go away. The promise doesn't go away. We're just looking for the promise to be fulfilled in somebody else. There's still a unilateral, unconditional, gracious, eternal promise to this king and to the people for whom he rules and for whom he reigns. But we see that the Lord is pronouncing this reality that it's not going to be Solomon and he's not even going to tear it from him while he's still living. He's going to have some grace to him, but it is going to be taken from him and given uh, to another. But ultimately, he's going to preserve it. And there's the idea of how the kings are supposed to rule is really clear. Turn, if you will, in Deuteronomy 17. So this is before they had even asked for a king when God was predicting that they would ask for a king and even granting it and planning for it. Deuteronomy 17, 
verses 14 through 20. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as your king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Okay, so 700 wives and 300 concubines is a clear violation of that, right? Lest his heart turn away, which is what the Lord said Solomon had done. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive gold and silver. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and keep all of his words and all of his laws and all of his statutes by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not, may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so you see that already laid out in Leviticus, even well before the ages of the kings, that this is what they're to be like, one who uh, obeys the law of the Lord. He worships Yahweh only. He's a one-woman man in terms of his, uh, his relationships. He only has one, one wife. He honors the Lord day and night. He meditates upon his law. He seeks righteousness. He seeks the best of his people and not necessarily uh, to build himself up, but to build his kingdom up. And so we see that over and over. And throughout First and Second Kings, we recognize none of them live up to this. None of them do this. Some of them miss the mark a little bit. And some of them way off. <laughs> I mean, not, not even in the ballpark. And so much so, right, that this, uh, the kingdom even splits. You end up with a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. This is supposed to be the people of God, 12 tribes, the, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here we are now with a group of 10 and a group of two, and they're at war with each other, and they're com committing idol uh, adultery uh, amongst themselves. They're worshiping pagan gods. They're incorporating them into their worship. They're building uh, idols. It's just a mess. And yet God is merciful. And God remembers his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Whenever they violate the Mosaic Covenant, he says, but for the sake of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not the covenant that they stood there and said, all this we will do at Mount Sinai, but the covenant where he said, all this I will do to Abraham, and then reiterates that with David. And so then... Zach Keel summarizes really well the main principle I want to get across, and then I just want to spend the rest of our time looking at Jesus. On page 123, there's this idea. The principle of the Davidic covenant is that a particular king may fail, but Yahweh graciously preserves the kingdom for the sake of his promise to David. So any particular king may fail, and we have a whole list of them. <laughs> but the kingdom is promised forever, and an heir is promised forever, and we're waiting for that one. And so then now look at all the lines in the water, <laughs> so that when Jesus comes, you know, hey, what's, who cares so much about a king, right? In the United States, we're like, we don't like monarchies. <laughs> 
We're monarchists of the highest order. We worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, right? Um, so all the lines in the water pointing to, all right, who is this king? Who is this one? Who is this promised seed? And so first, if you even think of the prophecies, they said that he would come from the line of Judah, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born of a virgin, and that he would be humble and riding on a donkey. There's not a lot of people who fit that box, right? So we're trying to figure out who is this Jesus. Ultimately, this is what we want to proclaim, and the good news that we have to tell you is about who Jesus is. And so we want to know who, who is he? Where is he? All right, the prophecies kind of tell us, well, look for this. You know, the funnel got smaller and smaller. He's got to be from Judah, from Bethlehem, and now he's also going to be born of a virgin. All right, whew, that's narrowing the odds. But it's also going to make it really clear when we find this one, right? And then think about the genealogies. In your notes, I put some of the texts, and also I have an ellipsis uh, through some just to highlight certain aspects. But Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Trying to make it clear, trying to connect the dots. There have been 400 years of silence uh, after Malachi's written. And then all of a sudden, just a cacophony in the Gospels from the angels, uh, from the Gospels, just announcing, don't miss it, this is the one. Here is the one. The, the book of the genealogy of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in Matthew 1, 6, it goes on to say, David the king. In Luke's gene- genealogy, in 1, 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Probably not a lot of, again, only, there wasn't another couple next door. Is it in the same situation? We're at the, are we at the right Mary's house, or is it the other Mary? Is it Mary 1 or Mary 2? It's Mary 1. There's one Mary that's a virgin that has a son who's of the house of David, whose name is Jesus. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. Forever and ever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the high will overshadow you and the child to be born shall be called the son of God, the promised seed. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also conceived a son and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. It's one of the sweetest responses to the word of God in Scripture. Let it be to me according to your word. Right? Think about the single warrior combat. We talked, when we talked about David, we talked about, as again, as goes the king, as goes the kingdom. And often in ancient Near East, you would have two warriors battle, and as they battled, that's how the fight went. So when David went to face Goliath, 
um, it was David v. Goliath, right? And if David won, Israel won. If Goliath won, the Philistines won. David won. And so the Israelites won that battle. So here comes another king, and he's doing single combat warrior, but this time with Satan. The temptations that we read about in Matthew and Luke in particular. And in all three of him, he, all three of those main temptations, when Satan was offering him another kingdom or another way or another route or something, he always relied on the word of God and he always resisted those, those things. And he defeated sin, he defeated Satan, he defeated death. He shows himself to be king. He does single combat warrior with our arch enemy, with Satan, and he wins. He shows that by casting out the demons. He shows that by having power and dominion over every, everything <laughs> while he's on earth. He calms storms, he heals the sick, he raises the dead, and he forgives sins. Who can do that but God alone, right? So in his miracles, he's showing himself to be king. He's showing himself to be king of all of creation, everything visible and invisible, everything that exists. Jesus in the flesh is Lord over as he's been from all of eternity. At the transfiguration, in Matthew 17, 1 through 8, it says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led him up to the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. What do they represent? Moses represents the... And Elijah represents the, and Elijah is the one who is here in First and Second Kings as well. So Moses and Elijah appear talking with this other person who we know to be Jesus. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased to listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is radical. Just to think about all of the law and all of the prophets bear witness to Jesus. And here the disciples see Jesus talking with Moses and Elijah and hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my son, the one in whom I'm well pleased. And what should you do? Listen to him. How does faith come? By hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ, right? Listen to him. Listen to him. In other words, believe him. Follow him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, how many of the kings over and over said, my will, my will, my will, my will be done? What did Adam do in the garden, right? He didn't follow God's will. Right? Don't eat of this tree. And Adam said, not your will, but mine be done. And he took and he ate. And Jesus in the garden, facing horrible sorrows, knowing what's coming, says, where is the verse? 
and going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Ah, here's a king after God's own heart. Here's the one who doesn't say, my will be done, but thy will be done. Knowing what's coming. What was on his heart, why he was willing to do it, is because of you and because of me and because of his love for us. He's a good shepherd. He's a good king. He cares for his people. He's going to do that single combat warrior stuff for us. He's going to fight our enemies and he's going to defeat them, but he knows that it's going to be costly and he knows it's going to be painful. And the worst thing he knows is that here he prayed, my father. He knows that in just a few hours, He's going to be abandoned. He's going to be left alone. He's going to be cursed and he's going to be condemned. Not because of what he did, but because of what we did. Because our sons were imputed to him. The only prayer in scripture on the lips of Jesus where he doesn't say, my father or our father is from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Unfortunately, that's not his last prayer from the cross. His last prayer was, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit after he accomplished it, after he knew, after it was done, after he bore it. So all these lines in the water showing us, it's this one, right? Don't, don't miss it. So in the garden, but also at the crucifixion, what the Romans meant as mockery is truth. He's the king of the Jews. They put something over him, right? They recognized he was claiming to be king. He had come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Just like prophesied 600, 400 and something, 600 years before his birth. And he did. And they're mocking him because it doesn't look like the king that they thought. They thought he was going to overthrow Rome. And he threw something, overthrew something more horrible than Rome. He overthrew sin, he overthrew Satan, and he overthrew death. And his kingdom was present in power and Uh, in might through the Holy Spirit through what Jesus was doing so at the crucifixion um, he was recognized as king by some others were mocking him even though they had the it was the right title he wasn't just the king of the Jews but he surely is the king of the Jews as well and then if you look at turn if you will in your Bible to Revelation chapter 4 Revelation 1. So look at what John records here for us in Revelation 1, starting in verse 4. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Who's that? The Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who's that? The Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. Right? In other words, the king of the kings. (laughs) This one. And tell tell me something about that king. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins 
and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who was to come, the Almighty. I mean, it just starts off, right? Recognizing that he is the king. He's the promised one. But as we said, he also makes us kings and queens. He makes us priests. He makes us prophets. We share in his anointing. He did these things for us, but in us, we rule and reign. Currently, in the spheres that he's given us, but ultimately, the new heavens and the new earth. We have a prophetic voice even now to tell people the truth about the law of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have priestly functions in the way that we go about serving and loving and caring for one another. We share in his anointing as prophets, priests, and kings, queens, if you will. Also look at Revelation 4. No, no, that's what I meant, sorry. Uh, Revelation 21. This is pretty clear. (laughs) Who's this king? Revelation 22. Sorry, did I say 21? No, 21. There's no 22. There's 22. 22. I have it wrong in my notes. 22, 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Who's the king? (laughs) It's pretty confusing. Didn't give us enough data to identify who the king is, right? Look at all of this. Who's the king? There's more that could be done, right? Jesus says... I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm the one that was unilaterally, unconditionally, graciously, and eternally promised. Sorry, that's to tell me I have five minutes. Someone will have to teach me how to... It's on, it's on silent? So why is this happening? <laughs> Brett said if I was a Navy pilot, that would be my call sign. User error which that, that plane would never leave the flight deck probably because of that, for everyone's safety. <laughs> uh, true, truer words were, have never been spoken. But then notice what he says. The spirit and the bride say come. Right? Jesus is a one-woman man. He came for his bride. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Jesus has one bride who he loves and he loves perfectly, and he loves faithfully, and he loves perpetually, and he loves effectually. And now Jesus, his church, and the Spirit are saying, come. You want salvation? You want forgiveness? You want freedom? You want hope? You want peace? You want righteousness? Come. Where is it found? In the King. He's the one who forgives. He's the one who gives that righteousness. You need to be perfectly righteous and holy to stand before God. The Mosaic law is right. 
but we don't do it on our own. To us, it doesn't come through works of the law, but through faith. But in one who did perfectly obey and endured the curse of our disobedience and who is ruling and reigning on our behalf. And so let me just read it uninterrupted. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who has ears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. It's really wonderful, isn't it? And so when, sometimes when we read First and Second Kings, it's like, whew, what is all of this? Not the best chapters of our family history. But you know what? We're more like the kings than we are like Jesus. And thus, we need Jesus. Who they were looking forward to is who we are looking back on. And we await his return. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you that you haven't left things ambiguous. But we thank you also that we know that we wouldn't be able to see these things without the eyes of faith. We thank you that you have given us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and minds to understand. We pray that you would grow us in grace, grow us in faith as you conform us more and more to our King, Jesus. We thank you that he has endured the curse that should have been meted out upon us. We thank you that he lived a perfect life of righteousness in our stead and that we stand before you clothed in his robe. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit indwells us and that there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from your love in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And Father, as those who have received such an embarrassment of riches, may we be humble in our lives and grateful in our lives and merciful in our lives. And may we be quick to share the good news and to tell others about King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. One other bonus, the Great Commission, I forgot to mention. When Jesus said, how much authority has been given him? All authority in heaven and earth, right? I mean, he's claiming to be king even then right before the ascension. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. It's not we're waiting for him to have authority. All authority. As King Jesus is now. Go in peace.